We're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Joel. If you guys will pull out your bulletin, we'll be reading from Joel chapter 1. And children, you were dismissed for children's church. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Weigh, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Yeah, once again, I truly am Howard Brown. Um, For those of you who don't know, I had a lot more hair than I have this morning. I had locks down to here, and um, so, I don't know, Thursday, it just started to feel real heavy, and so I went and got them cut, Um, and so... I'll be okay. Um, it's going to take a long... Jeremiah, you ain't holding it down. You got, you don't have a, your wife wants you to cut them, so you ain't got long. <clears throat> so we can, as we start, rather, in this sermon series, in the book of Joel, it's kind of interesting, the Nota School of Arts thing went this morning and even Paul talked about his mother about it was the evening of the Nota School of Arts performance of Willy Wonka Jr. There was busied and hurried excitement with my wife Kelly being the director of the summer production and it was there sitting in the audience that I got a call that call and the irony of the musical backdrop of a sweet Wonder World, my dad simply said, your mama wants y'all to come home. My mother had been battling cancer for three years up to that point, and we knew what it could have meant when she was originally diagnosed. And it really began to set in when she had to have her right lung removed. And then there was a period of recovery and a trip to China with daddy. But more lumps came back. And another hopeful operation later, followed by days of severe weakness. 
And then a rare period of time at home, not in the hospital. In fact, my boys thought my mom lived there. We went to a hospital and she goes, they're like here in Charlotte. They're like, are we going to see grandma? So it was a rare period period of time at home, not in the hospital, to only after a few days to be found blacked out in the bathroom upstairs by my dad back to the hospital. A theme was developing. A plot line that I refused to accept, that I attempted to bypass. I, I tried to drown out what was a prerequiem to the inevitable. Her day was coming soon. In August 2008, that day came. What was a prerequiem, a pre-mass, a wake to the coming in is not a personal story only about Pastor Brown and his cancer-laden mother. This book of Joel is about the day of the Lord. A day of judgment and justice on all that is broken and separated from God and his perfect will. A day when we will see and know that this was the day and occurrence of God's judgment and justice and righting of things done wrong. A day when there can be no doubt or any human conjecture or theory about why this or that is coming apart finally. It will be clear to all and many and some that this is the day of the Lord. And that means the final day of the Lord, of course, when he comes back in Armageddon style. But it also means times and periods in the life of, in history of the church and its people as they live in communities and nations on this earth. And we'll take some time next week to look at what it means, the day of the Lord means in more depth in this sermon series. But Joel, a prophet who probably dropped this back in 500 B.C., this first chapter. We don't know the date for sure. His first chapter was like my dad that day, giving God's people a wake-up call that, that like my dad's call did for me. It caused me to do a retrospective, if you will, of my mom's progressive sickness of all the times and images and feelings that said, you knew this was coming. And like my own retrospective revealed and confirmed that night, Joel is calling us before the day of the Lord comes to look around this world, this life, and in yourself. It is clear that this world is broken. And when I say broken, I am talking about God-given beauty and created beauty and rightness and purity that has been permanently dented and damaged or disfigured or discouraged because of sin. Joel is saying, look, y'all, keep it real. Let's be honest with ourselves and others about what this thing means and where this thing is going. If it's broke, God's going to have to fix it. And Joel's message is sent to make those of us who are deaf to the Lord's words to listen up and asleep in God's light to wake up and foolish in God's presence to finally grow up. And he does this here in Joel using the imagery of locust, a locust attack. And I want to make it as simple as possible for you guys. So unlike what happened to me as I read this, we don't get too bogged down in it. The locusts are both real and symbolic. 
Locusts in that region back then were known to really eat crops and trees. But, but Joel is pointing to more. That the locusts and their, their natural uh, appetites are being driven and being led by supernatural forces. That these locust attacks represent and symbolize sin's effect on the world, on real lives and, and this real world. And thus what and who must be straightened and corrected one day by God. What are the locusts eating and infesting in Joel and now in our world and in our lives? What is about to be judged and and called to justice by God that we can sing pre-requiem to? I believe this passage is teaching. First, our society. Then, our comforts. And finally, our religion. Look at verse 2 through 4 once again with me. Joel says, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the, swarm, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Understand, for Joel to have to say, hear you elders, and ask them to tell their children, tells the story about them and us. That there has obviously been this failure of of elders or, or those in charge, those leaders in the community to hear, to be teachers, to be leaders of relationships and community. This is like having to say, parents, parent, Right? And so there is this deadly disconnect between generations. And so community is in danger of, of, of in light of locust attack, of, of not handling it well, of not storing up or, or realizing that life can be broken like this. There is no wisdom and history being taught from what only elders and leaders can give. And so there is this tendency of the generation to have a false belief in something to hope for. There is rampant lack of knowledge. There is rampant lack of care. And for the old and young or any other responsible relationship, a bunch of selfishness. And Joel is telling the society of those who know and don't know, who have experienced hard times and hard days, tell them the brokenness. Tell them what it was like to struggle. Tell them of the sinfulness of this world that you yourself have experienced. Here. Speak and serve each other with what is true and you have seen in this life and what God has even shown you in your struggle. And it is saying that we live in a world and society, again, where parents don't take responsibility and communities and governments have devolved into political games. Where the words dad and dead and beat go hand in hand. And a politician is the opposite of someone who serves somebody else. And where people who are pastors called pastors or priests or scout leaders or coaches or big cousins or, or babysitters, those words make you afraid now. We're being parents and parenting are miles apart. And in this disconnect of necessary, responsible relationships, all the while there is, as it's talking about, inside and and outside. Disease and death. 
that breeds and God is letting us experience the brokenness of it. This is what Joel is saying. He's going to let us experience the brokenness of the disconnect between elders and, 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 and children and the generations. You know it's true. Parents sometimes just really don't understand. And worse, many don't want to. Or try to, because they're too busy living their own lives. They're trying to live their dreams through you. And, and having lived their dreams through you, and it is like the locust. It has eaten and has eaten like these locusts on the wheat. The substance of your communities and humanity. It is true that relationships in general are eaten up and diseased. That what is not obvious on the outside, there is something. These locusts have three phases, right? They got the hopping locust, the flying locust, and then they have the larvae that eats the inside of the thing. Every single relationship you have is far from perfect. But not only are our relationships broken, but our economy and resources. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. It says, The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. I want you to understand, along with what we read about the wheat being eaten by the locusts, this description by Joel is a literal description of the inability of people in this world to feed themselves and their families and live and have jobs that that make ends meet. What it's saying is in this world, there are systems and communities and people and families that that can't even work because there aren't enough jobs. And when you do work, there isn't enough money coming out of it. You can't get anything out of it. Men and women, humans, get this, humans God made to work. And when they do, the ground they're supposed to produce are now, like verse 11, living in shame because the locusts have eaten everything there is. Think how it makes you feel. You're going for a job. You're signing up to, to, to make things work. And when you do the right thing and get a job, it's still not enough. Joel is saying, oh, folks, those who know better, Listen up and speak up. But he is saying they have and, and will fail to do so because mom and dad and elders and leaders are living under the same shame too. That they are ashamed by the failure, the economic and resource failure. This life has brought them to hear and speak and love. So Joel would agree if he were here that yes, we need more fathers in the home. And we need more jobs. That's true. But like Joel says, that won't save us ultimately either. Because like verse says about the not so obvious destroying locusts, there are locusts on the outside, but also those that you can't see, right? This, isn't a ha- this is not a happy message, by the way. Let me just go ahead and inform you. He is saying where it looks healthy may be diseased on the inside. Let me get this. 
There is no social setup completely right. There is nothing that is not broken or locust infected by the judgment of living in a fallen world. So all that looks right or put together well or well-spoken and well-educated and well-groomed and beautiful and behind a gated community or nice zip code is infected and broken. There is no right politic or perfect marriage plan or philosophy to finally make husbands pleased and wives happy. Don't believe the hype. Joel is saying, tell them, like I am, that the economy will fail again and again and again, regardless of who is in office. Tell them there is no silver bullet. Tell them there, there's no golden age of back then when we had things, things were better. Or, you know, things were better. Than, you know, I, sometimes I hear people say, why can't we go back to the golden age, back to the 50s and 60s? Don't tell a black man that. <laughs> back when it was leave it to Beaver. Beaver never had a black friend come over. There was no age. There was no golden age. Every age had locust. Tell them that when we, as some of you believe, we will finally have something perfectly straight or find the right technology or find the right health solution. It's just not true. Tell them that, that just having a lifestyle in the closet is no less redeemed than having one out in the living room. Tell them that, that what they see is not right might be reality. That the deaths in Chicago and in Mexico and the hunger in Somalia and the long lines and, and lack of real food in inner cities and, and the color of faces at the bus stops or, or hanging out in the parking lot of, of home improvement stores and, and how they are contrasted by the faces of the Harris Teeters with the 24-item salad bar and fresh sushi and gourmet cheeses, that that disparity that is obvious is real brokenness and disease and locusts at work in our world. That is not a joke. It's not a fantasy and not going away anytime soon. Tell them what they see as broken is really broken. And it can't be fixed or called art or keeping it real or being real that we are way too ashamed and broken in this world for our society to work. Use whatever words you got to do it. But tell them as I am that our society is primed. It's prerequiemed, if you will, for the day of the Lord, for reckoning, for writing, for restoration. But not only our society, but sorry, y'all Americans, our comfort. Look at verses 5 through 7. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs have the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. What we see first in Joel's command for the drunkards to awake, kind of reminiscent of the closing scene of Spike Lee's school days, right? Day spelled D-A-Z-E in a days where, where young Lawrence Fishburne rings the bell at the center of the campus on apathetic and relationally anemic young African-American students to wake up. When it talks about locusts eating the vine and the fig tree, since locusts typically don't eat fig trees and grapevines, is that all the basic stuff they normally eat is all gone. And so they have moved on to destroying the vine and the tree. 
And these locusts are eating the bark off the tree. These trees will never grow back for generations. The vines and the trees throughout the Bible are symbolic of comfort, of prosperity, of pleasure, of the ability to provide your own self-security, right? The ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be good, hard-working American types. The Bible describes the most prosperous time in a life as Israel, much like the, we want to be in America, that every person was happy under their own tree. If you've ever seen any rap videos, the, the props are often, uh, you know, really expensive bottles of champagne poured around crystal or some expensive kind of alcohol. Well, back then, if they did a B.C. Middle Eastern video, they would be pouring sweet wine, right? Sweet wine stood for bling, for pleasure, right? For ease of life, for having more than you need, to, for comfort, to celebrating all kind of good things happening to you. Joel is clear here. He is giving a prerequiem to the comfort that prosperity and pleasure has given us. God is teeing up what makes us feel happy and hopeful and secure to be judged and justice and redeemed by him. People are turning to their prosperity and pleasures to make them feel better about themselves. And, and Joel is saying that is not working and won't keep working either. That like verse 5 says that instead of the wine making folk laugh and party, he's calling them to weep and will and have a funeral because God is already beginning to let them experience and recognize the emptiness of it all. The fact that what should clearly make you happy, now this, this is true for everybody. Okay, you don't have to be a Christian up in here, a real churchy person to know this. That the fact that what should make you, should clearly make you happy and give you comfort and joy and hope and security can't really do so. And the fact that once you get what you think you would make you happy will turn around and ironically make you weep and will and cry all the more because you've gotten all that you wanted and prayed for and fought for and found that it still won't scratch the itch and, and fix the pain. It is a clear indication That the day of the Lord is coming for that faulty sense of comfort that we are trying to make work for ourselves and it can't and it doesn't. The Lord doesn't want money, savings, retirement plans, 401k, B, C, E, and D's. And pleasure in the perfect marriage, in the perfect job, and body, and vacation, and house, and community, or drug, or smoke, or sexual experience, or artistic experiences, or dance, or movie, or whatever entertainment, or even ascetic, right? Self-righteous minimalism and the pleasure of saying, we don't need all that stuff like everybody else. I'll just live in a tent. The Lord doesn't want those things to make you and me sleep. That is why in verse 5, he calls us to wake up. He doesn't want it to lull us to sleep and lose ourselves and what is truly dulling us to the pain. You know, sometimes we ask, Lord, why can't I just be happy? Why, God? Can't you just make me happy? I ask myself, I ask the Lord that a lot, three and four times a day. Why can't you just make me happy? I'm a Christian, you know. I was saved in middle school. I listen to Christian rap. Lord, why can't you just make me happy? 
I mean, you know, I listen to a lot of other stuff, but I still put the Christian rap on at the end. Because God wants you to know, as this verse tells us, human happiness is more often than not a lie. A dream, a fantasy, a fake, an imposter to, to worth and value, a spiked punch. And God is flashing the lights at your personal comfort house party because it's time for daddy to come home, right? Biggie, but first King Solomon said, well, more money, more problems, right? More worldly comforts, more problems. And the irony of it is this. The more comforts you get and the more, com- unco- the more uncomfortable you feel, right? That you get close to the edge. And the only way to be happy is to go off the edge. The best view of happiness is not enough. Because in this life, oh, I can't walk away. Sorry. God truly only gives us, at most, a front row seat to happiness. I like SeaWorld. Been there a couple times. I love sitting on the front. Well, not quite the front. You get too soaked. But I I like sitting close enough where you can feel the spray and you can see the whales up close. And that blue water on that 99 degrees in Florida, and you just think you can get in. I don't know if y'all are like me, but I see that blue, I'm thinking, I just want to dive in that thing. And it's so frustrating. You can't ride that well, but I want to. <laughs> How many of us left, you know, SeaWorld, I'm going to be a marine biologist so I can work with the dolphins. I did. I still do. If I go down to SeaWorld right now, to be like, I ain't pastor no more. I want to ride a whale. <laughs> but you can't ride the whale. He is not your friend. You can't drink that blue water. It's nice to be up front to feel the comfort of the spray, but it just makes you only satisfied if you jump in. And if you do, you might drown. You may get eaten by the whale, and you will definitely be arrested. (laughs) Yet some of you have been foolish enough to jump into relying and believing a lie of happiness and comfort, and you have been arrested. You've been ruined in your relationship. Your reputations have lost everything because you wanted to be happy. I've got some bad news that is good news in disguise from from God for marriages. If marriage is your vine, your tree, expecting this ultimate romantic and relational acceptance and comfort and happiness, hear this. You and I are simply an audience of what marriage means and you experience it like a really fun, nice front seat participant. But it is just cut off enough from perfection that it begs and it screams for the day of the Lord for the way it frustrates us. And it's not what we thought it would be. It doesn't give us the comfort we thought it would give us. Wake up. The day of the Lord is coming for our comforts. And the economy, get this, people are upset, not just because their weed has been eaten, can't find a job, but people are weeping and willing because they can't go to Europe this year. We did it every year. Or have to let go of one of their homes. Now, I don't want to make it sound like they haven't worked hard for what they have. That's good. If you get two homes, it makes us have two. Let a pastor who can't afford it use it. But I want you to see that even financial security that gives comfort is a lie. Wake up! Before it was lost in recession, it was just a painkiller, but never a life giver. 
There's a big difference. And all of the brokenness and what should give us comfort and prosperity and peace and pleasure is a precursor, a prerequiem to what is necessary for the comforts of this world to have its proper place. God is going to relegate and regulate our comforts. And you and I, if we wake up and feel and see, we already know it's true. We are in ourselves begging and longing for, yes, that terrible day of the Lord to come and tear the veneer of our comforts off. Surprise, finally, this is not only coming, not only coming a prerequiem of our society and our comforts, but of our religion. Look with me at verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord The fields are are, are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Joel is saying that religion and faith of God's people is in trouble. It reeks of brokenness. It is directly affected by the sin, fall, and disease of this world. When it says that the grain offering and drink offering are cut off, it means that there is so much brokenness in people's worlds and lives, that there's nothing to bring to the temple to sacrifice. That the locusts have eaten the wheat and wine and figs, which means the animals will die too. ain't got no food for them. And there can be no blood sacrifice or wheat or wine or oil sacrifices. These people have nothing to worship the Lord with. And then the priests mourn because the priests get to eat whatever the people leave over. And so they're suffering. And the worst part of this is what verse 8 points to. When it talks about the virgin wearing sackcloth instead of a wedding dress, it means that the engagement, that means the one she has had all her life to be married to because they had arranged marriages, ended not in a wedding, but in a funeral or divorce. What is it talking about? God's people are the virgin and bride of the Lord. And it means that the relationship between God and his people is and is often strained and distant and sad. Literally, there is this despairing image of temple worship of the church that there is no relationship with God because there is nothing to worship him with and sacrifice and there is no worship because the priests themselves can't keep the doors open or as open as it should be. People don't come to worship because of what verse 11 says. Look with me. Be ashamed. O tillers of soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the, and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up. Gladness dries up from the children of man. People are ashamed and embarrassed and pumped. They are condemned for what they have or have not done or accomplished. They feel cursed in this broken world, and they are not joyful or happy about themselves or their God right now. They have nothing to come with and nothing to thank God for. Instead of coming ready and dressed up before the Lord like the bride, we come in sackcloth and sadness and not expecting anything good from God. And they hide their lives and keep their lives from him in shame. They don't come to worship. What is Joel saying? That our religion and our faith, our ability to carry out our part of our relation with God is broken at best. Right up in this church. 
here are some countercultural truths about the faith. It is not here to make you rich. Y'all can start filing out now when I get to your thing. It is not here to make you happy or give you comforts of this world or make the broken relationships all cool. You may not experience a charismatic high all the time. You may not feel and experience God like you want to. There will be days where your prayers feel cold and even seem to go unanswered. God will feel like he has left us out in the dark. Bad things still happen to you. And you won't find a reason for it. It wasn't because you forgot to pray at seven. It will be hard to thank and praise God for this in your life. So people will take the little they are and the little they have to keep away from God. Because we don't want to face God in our shame. We don't even trust him. A real wonder some of y'all even here today. Because condemnation and shame have you. You haven't done right before the Lord. You know you've let your life empty out and and be locust eaten by all the sinful ways we've lived and thought, I'm in the same boat. I just got to be here this morning. It's my job. But I feel ashamed and condemned. I wake up, I don't want to come up in here and talk about God and Jesus, Jesus, and Jermaine with his great voice singing, glory to glory, join me. Because when I look at this world, and I open a newspaper, and I look at my checkbook, and I look at this, and look at that, and I look at my grass burn because I put too much fertilizer on it, and I look at these things. I don't want to come up in here. I don't have nothing to be thankful for, it seems. I'm not righteous enough to be up in here. This is what God's people are feeling. They they, they tie their prosperity, if you will, in the Old Testament to God's goodness. And and in some sense, we should. And so they're like, God hasn't been good to us. Look, face it, the church institutions, people, though we are told to create and God has created church institution, it is a broken thing. We are a mess. We are not always sure. We are not always right. We are not always happy. The church too feels and bears outwardly a face of shame in what we can and cannot accomplish that it wants to. Money runs out. People leave out. Commitment is low. We fight between churches on stupid stuff. And when Joel says the wine dries up in the oil languages, it is a reference to the fact that we are worship and faith in God and experience, we experience the same thing. Dryness, languishing, and mourning. After I got the phone call from my dad, I dragged my feet. I tried to just enjoy Willy Wonka. I didn't want it to be what it was. I went home and went to sleep. I tried to anyway. My dad called again. She wants y'all to come home. And I asked him a million questions. Does she really want us to come home? Is she really going to, is this really it? Because there have been so many times before. And my dad raises his voice. I don't know what you want me to say. I've already said it. She says, come home because this is probably it. I got back under the covers. It can't be what it feels and seems and what daddy is saying. And this craziness to clear and progressive shouldn't add up. 
And I eventually, an hour later, left our, we left our house reluctant, not wanting to go, because I knew what my participation in this pre-requiem act action could or would mean. Mama was going to go. Cancer would have won. It was not a lie all along. She was a woman of great faith, but God did not heal her. The so-called best in the South doctors could not save her, and my prayers and my visits were not enough. I was an hour away from home, and I got another call. Don't rush. She's already gone. I didn't make it to say goodbye. I dragged my heart and my feet and my ears. I tried to sleep it away and reason it away and miss saying goodbye. This is a pre-requiem in Joel. A pre-death mass. He's calling us to hear and wake up and lament and admit to this. Something has got is going to happen in this broken world in our broken lives. The signs and cracks of disease tied to that are clearly there. We must not close our ears and eyes and dull our senses or fake bake our faith. We must join in the activity of pre-requiem. So where is the good news in this? God gives us the opportunity to say goodbye to what this life means, to give it to the Lord's justice, good riddance to its brokenness and its struggle and its cancer and our foolishness and senselessness in it all, to usher in, to wake up and pull and put our broken lives in the recycle bin and put it on the side of the road because we have no final ultimate hope and what we can bring or give to save our lives and world. The day of the Lord is coming to pick up our trash and recycle it and redeem it. The day of the Lord is on the way. Let us begin to say goodbye. In our living this life, let us say goodbye to what we thought was happiness, what we thought was joy, and we thought was comfort, and we thought were relationships on this earth that would save us. It's just not true. You can say goodbye. Because the day of the Lord is coming to say, hello, here I am. And we'll talk about more of that next week.